Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today we have episode 331 for July 3rd, 2023. So first of all, for those of you in the U.S., happy Independence Day. Uh, please be careful out there. I just saw a post on Twitter, actually, that was really scary. Uh, I think it was actually from a couple of years ago, but I hadn't seen it until now. Uh, somebody doing fireworks uh, with family out in the front yard. You know, they were setting off one firework about I don't know, 20 feet away from where everybody was sitting, including like a baby and some really young kids. And the, the the firework went to the side somehow, misfired instead of going up, went to the side. And then of course, where did it go? It went into the pile of other fireworks and set all of them off. So uh, be careful. We've got a news show for you today. Uh, got a few topics to cover. We've got a deer carry question and a tip of the week. So a full show. A couple quick notes, though, before we get into the, the topic list. Uh, if you're using Apple's My Photo Stream, you need to save those pictures off before that service goes dark. I don't know why they're doing this, but they're not. It, it was kind of a stopgap measure for people who wanted to automatically transfer stuff from their phones uh, or I guess your iPads to uh, a Mac computer. Uh, that's generally how it works. You set it up, uh, and then as you take the picture, it should wirelessly sync when you're home or you're on the same Wi-Fi. For me, it was always kind of flaky. It didn't always get all the pictures, uh, but it was kind of nice. That way I didn't have to you know, physically sync my phone. Now, of course, a lot of people just use iCloud Photos, and if you're already using that, you're good to go. Uh, I actually will probably start using that whenever I finally get around to setting up advanced data protection. I've been meaning to do it for months uh, but I keep running into problems because I've got so many Apple devices and I think there's just one odd device for some reason I'm not able to update or it thinks it's not updated. So I haven't been able to turn that on. And then I've got the other, I've also tried to figure out the recovery key situation. So anyway, once I get all that figured out, I will actually probably do a little, maybe a tip of the week on that for you guys on how to set that up and how it works. Anyway, the main thing now is if you are using Apple's photo stream, uh, I think I've got a link in the show notes for this, but uh, just basically what you need to do is, uh, go into your Photos app on your Mac and make sure you drag and drop uh, anything that's in there that you want to save into your library. Uh, now, for me, it just that seemed to be automatic. Like I didn't when I went to drag and drop it, like it didn't really import anything. It looked like it was already there. So maybe you'll find the same thing. I don't know. But anyway, just quick heads up for you Apple folks who might be using that feature because it is going away very soon. Another quick note before we get into the news list, I was just interviewed by the Securitized podcast. That was a lot of fun. I talked to uh, Raphael from Safing. He's one of the hosts, and, and he was the person who got me hooked up with this. And then Ben was the main host, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Ben Ben's really easy to talk to. We really kind of get riffing on some stuff. So it's about an hour of me talking about me and and the stuff that I've done and how I got to where I'm at. Uh, and just, we talk about privacy in, uh, in general. So if you're interested, there's a link in the show notes. You can check that out. All right. So I said, we have a news show today. I did not lie. We're going to be talking about uh, how CISA has just issued some distributed denial of service warnings about some attacks on multiple U.S. organizations. We've got an article about a spyware app called Let Me Spy. Uh, another one of these stalkerware or spouseware apps. They were actually hacked themselves. And a lot of the stuff that they were spying on other people uh, has now gotten loose. I want to talk about this interesting story about some researchers who figured out a way to recover cryptographic keys by analyzing LED light flickers on a computer. Now, there's a lot of caveats to that, and we'll cover that, but it's still a very interesting story. And it, I think it's just fascinating from a side channel attack kind of a perspective that I thought you might be interested to hear. The Australian Prime Minister told everybody in Australia to turn their iPhones off for five minutes a day. I'll tell you why. Some prominent musicians have come out strongly against the use of facial scanning technology, and they're actually boycotting venues that use it. And I think you might be surprised to learn how many places are using it. The Brave browser has announced another cool privacy feature that brings up a really interesting topic, something I honestly hadn't really thought much about. Proton has released its Proton Pass, its password manager, that has some interesting features, and I'll kind of give you a quick, quick little review of that. Then we've got my dear Carrie question of the week. This one, this one comes from Mark from quote unquote Sweet Home Alabama, and then I've got my tip of the week, uh, where I'll talk about having an access backup plan. So lots to talk about. Let's get to it. 
All right, first up, this is from Bleeping Computer. Uh, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, warned today of ongoing distributed denial of service, or DDoS, attacks after U.S. organizations across multiple industry sectors were hit. All U.S. orgs were advised to take proactive measures to ensure that their security teams are ready to thwart or mitigate the effects of such attacks. For instance, network administrators should be ready to quickly adapt firewall rules or redirect incoming malicious traffic through DOS protection services to prevent attackers from taking down targeted online portals or services. Alternatively, Internet Service Providers, or ISPs, can also provide guidance on appropriate steps to take in such situations. CISA, in collaboration with the FBI and MSISAC, otherwise known as the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, provides guidance on what organizations should do before and after a DDoS attack. And by the way, that's a link in the show notes. So if you are somebody who would like to know more about that, definitely check out the show notes for this article and click that link. Including enrolling in dedicated DDoS protection services, which can reroute malicious traffic away from the targeted assets. While the cybersecurity agency is yet to provide any context, today's warning, and this is, I think, last Wednesday, comes after several DDoS attacks targeting both private and government organizations had their online portals taken offline in incidents claimed by Anonymous Sudan, a threat actor tracked as Storm 1359 by Microsoft that some cybersecurity researchers believe might be linked to Russia. Since the start of the week, Anonymous Sudan claimed they had taken down the website of the EFTPS.gov, or the U.S. Treasury's Department of Electronic Federal Tax Payment System, and the U.S. Department of Commerce website. Today, they claimed another DDoS attack that targeted Stripe's dashboard for managing business payments, refunds, and operations. And you may not have heard of Stripe, but they're behind a lot of payment systems, including a lot of on-site point-of-sale stuff, including sometimes those. Have you ever been to like a, a, a fair where you've gone to a booth and someone wants you to pay for something and they whip out their cell phone and it's got a little dongle on it and you swipe your card through that? Those are often made by Stripe. Anyway, earlier this month, Microsoft also confirmed that multiple outages impacting its Outlook, OneDrive, and Azure web portals resulted from DDoS attacks claimed at the time by Anonymous Sudan. Starting in May, the group has targeted multiple other large organizations worldwide, including the Scandinavian Airlines, SAS, Tinder, and Lyft, as well as various hospitals across the United States. So just real quick, a, a DDoS, or a Distributed Denial of Service attack, this is when the bad guys decide that they want to make a web service unavailable. And the way to do that is to swamp it with so much internet traffic that they can't handle it and go down or become very, very slow and sluggish. So, and how do they do that? Well, basically what they do is they, they commandeer usually in a distributed denial of service attack. It's called distributed because there's a lot of attacking computers and they're not really owned by the bad guys. Usually very often they're IOT devices or, uh, or other, uh, lightweight computers that have been compromised that have been taken over and are part of what's called a botnet. And so these bad guys are controlling all these devices and waiting for situations like this where they want to get thousands of these things potentially to gang up on a particular website, a web address. And they send them a whole bunch of traffic to the point where that site can't handle all the traffic and becomes unresponsive and therefore unavailable. Now, how exactly they do that could get very technical, but actually it's, it's a lot easier than it sounds because there are some internet protocols that allow you to basically send a very simple little query packet that causes the site that you send that packet to, to do a lot of work and return a massive payload in response. It's very asymmetric. And so if you know what you're doing and you're using the right tools, it's actually not that hard to bring a website down. Now there's all sorts of, you know, CDNs and like places like Cloudflare and, and what, and ISPs that have built in protections for some of these things. And usually they work, but not always, and not everybody can afford these tools or uses these tools. Uh, and so we still, uh, you know, have websites that are subject to being taken down by these attacks. All right, next up, this is from TechCrunch, and it's about a spyware app called let me spy whose maker actually itself was hacked. A hacker has stolen the messages, call logs, and locations intercepted by a widely used phone monitoring app called Let Me Spy, according to the company that makes the spyware. The phone monitoring app, which is used to spy on thousands of people using Android phones around the world, said in a notice on its login page that on June 21st, quote, a security incident occurred involving obtaining unauthorized access to the data of website users. 
As a result of the hack, the criminals gained access to email addresses, telephone numbers, and the content of messages collected on accounts, unquote. Let Me Spy is a type of phone monitoring app that is marketed for parental control or employee monitoring. The app is also specifically designed to stay hidden on a phone's home screen, making it difficult to detect and remove. Also known as stalkerware or spouseware, these kinds of phone monitoring apps are often planted by someone, such as spouses or domestic partners, with physical access to a person's phone without their consent or knowledge. Once planted, Let Me Spy silently uploads the phone's text messages, call logs, and precise location data to its servers, allowing the person who planted the app to track the person in real time. For their deep level of access to a person's phone, these surveillance apps are notoriously buggy and known for rudimentary security mistakes, with countless spyware apps over the years getting hacked or leaking and exposing the private phone data stolen from unwitting victims. Let Me Spy is not much different. It's not clear who's behind the Let Me Spy hack or their motives. The hacker intimated that they deleted Let Me Spy let me Spy's databases stored on the server. A copy of the hacked database also appeared online later the same day. DDoS Secrets, a nonprofit transparency collective that indexes leaked datasets in the public interest, obtained a copy of the hacked Let Me Spy data and shared it with TechCrunch. DDoS Secrets says it was limiting the distribution of the data to journalists and researchers given the amount of personally identifiable information in the cache. TechCrunch reviewed the leaked data, which included years of victims' call logs and text messages dating back to 2013. The database we reviewed contained current records on at least 13,000 compromised devices, though some of the devices shared little to no data with Let Me Spy. And then parenthetically, it says here, Let Me Spy claims to delete data after two months of account inactivity. In January, Let Me Spy's website said its spyware was used to track over 236,000 devices and collected tens of millions of call logs, text messages, and location data points to date. At the time of the writing, the site's counters read as zero. Much of the site's functionality also appears to be broken, including the spyware app itself. TechCrunch analyzed the Let Me Spy phone app's network traffic, which showed that the app appeared to be non-functioning at the time of writing. It's unclear if Let Me Spy will notify the victims whose phones were compromised and spied on, or even if the company has the ability to do so. Where in the past it's been possible for victims to check for themselves if their data was compromised, the leaked Let Me Spy data contains no, no identifiable information that could be used to notify victims directly. Even if there was, notifying victims of spyware is tricky because it could also alert the person who planted the spyware and create an unsafe situation. Android spyware apps are typically disguised to look like important system apps. Let me spy is easier to find and uninstall. The app is called LMS and has a distinctive icon. And if you read the article, of course, you can see what that icon looks like. You should also switch on Google Play Protect, one of the best safeguards to defend against malicious Android apps. I'll come back to that in a minute. You could do this from the settings menu in Google Play. Let Me Spy is the latest in a long list of spyware and phone monitoring apps that have been hacked or breached or exposed victims' data in recent years. XN Spy, Kids Guard, and The Truth Spy, and Support King, to name a few. All right, so I covered this for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you happen to have an app on your phone called LMS, you might want to check this article to see if it's this one because you want to remove it, and the article can help you do that. Again, these are, these are spying apps. These are apps that if I have access to your phone and I can manage to install this on your phone without you knowing it, then I can track basically everything you do on, on that phone. This is something that's often used uh, by abusive partners. Sometimes it's used by parents on kids. That's how this is marketed because that, that's probably one of the few legal places where you could do something like this. You know, a parent doing this for their underage uh, child. And then these apps basically make that information available to the people who installed it. But of course, what that also means is that the company itself has access to all of this very, very private data on a lot of people who don't know that this data is being collected about them. And because of the way these apps are written, uh, they have to do some kind of shady coding practices and they kind of get up in your phone's business. And if they don't do that properly, they themselves can be hacked. And apparently that is what happened here. And now all this, <laughs> it's, it's weird to call it private data because it's being spied upon by both the company and the person who installed the app. 
but now it's apparently going to be given out to any, maybe somebody who buys it. Uh, who knows? So I guess, obviously, the clear bottom line on this is never, ever use one of these apps, no matter what your intentions. Even if it's a parent on kids, I just would never recommend doing these kind of things. There are built-in parental controls and things that you can use that come with the operating system, either with iOS or with Android. Stick to those things and be transparent about these things with your kids. Obviously, you should never do this with a domestic partner or anybody for that matter. Even employers should never do this for employees, even though they probably have the legal right to do so. Now, one more thing I said I was going to come back to. This article says that you should switch on Google Play Protect. I'm not an Android guy. I had to do a little research on this, but basically Android Play Protect is kind of like Windows Defender is to Windows. It's an antivirus security tool built into the operating system. It comes for free. So in that sense, you don't have to buy it. It's already there. You just have to turn it on. But unlike Windows Defender, apparently this app is really not very good. It's particularly it's bad at stopping malware. So, you know, maybe it's still better than nothing. I don't know. I generally don't recommend that people install antivirus stuff on their phones. Just, you know, don't root your phone. Don't go to stores outside the, you know, the standard Google Play stores or Apple app stores. If you're at all worried about these sorts of things, uh, obviously I know that many people prefer to be able to install whatever they want, and they would really like to go outside those app stores. I get that. If you're that technically capable and so inclined, you know, go for it. Just know what you're getting into. But for the average everyday person, I would certainly just tell you to avoid doing that for your own safety. All right, moving on. This is from the Hacker News. And this is <laughs> this is one of those kind of bizarre stories. Let me, let me read what's going on, and then I'll kind of explain it and give it a little bit more context. But it's more interesting than it is scary. So with that in mind... In what's an ingenious side channel attack, a group of academics has found that it's possible to recover secret keys from a device by analyzing video footage of its power LED. And this is a quote from researchers at Ben Gurion University. Quote, cryptographic computations performed by the CPU change the power consumption of the device, which affects the brightness of the device's power LED, unquote. By taking advantage of this observation, it's possible for threat actors to leverage video camera devices, such as an iPhone 13 or an internet-connected surveillance camera, to extract the cryptographic keys from a smart card reader, for example. Specifically, video-based cryptanalysis is accomplished by obtaining video footage of rapid changes in an LED's brightness and exploiting the video camera's rolling shutter effect to capture the physical emanations. Another quote from the researchers, quote, This is caused by the fact that the power LED is connected directly to the power line of the electrical circuit, which lacks effective means, e.g. filters or voltage stabilizers, of decoupling the correlation with the power consumption, unquote. In a simulated test, and that's a key thing here, it was found that the method allowed for the recovery of a 256-bit ECDSA key from a smart card by analyzing video footage of the power LED flickers via a hijacked internet-connected security camera. A second experiment allowed for the extraction of a 378-bit SIKE key from a Samsung Galaxy S8 handset by training the camera of an iPhone 13 on the power LED of Logitech Z120 speakers connected to a USB hub that's also used to charge the phone. There are a few limitations to reliably pulling off the scheme. It requires the camera to be placed 16 meters away from the smart card reader and in such a manner that it can be in direct line of sight view of the power LED. I don't think it needs to be specifically exactly 16 meters this is phrased funny, but anyway, I'll come back to that. Then there's the condition that the signatures are recorded for a duration of 65 minutes. That seems like an oddly specific number as well. It also presupposes that there exists a side channel based on power consumption that leaks sensitive information, which could be used for cryptanalysis, making such attacks an exception rather than a norm. No kidding. To counter such attacks, it's recommended that LED manufacturers integrate a capacitor to reduce fluctuations in power consumption, or alternatively, cover the power LED with black tape on the consumer side to prevent leakage. Ben Nassi, the lead researcher behind the attack technique, has previously devised similar approaches in the past. Lamp phone and glowworm, which employ overhead hanging bulbs and a device's power indicator LED to eavesdrop on conversations. Then last year, the researchers demonstrated what it called the little seal bug attack that utilized an optical side channel associated with lightweight reflective objects to recover 
the content of a conversation. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff alluded to there that they don't get into, and some of which I kind of want to lay out for you. But first of all, it's just this, this stuff is fascinating. These are called side channel attacks. So these are ways of getting information kind of in a indirect manner. And basically what these guys have figured out is that they can determine what sort of computations a computer is doing. In fact, not only that, but to somehow determine the the bits, the actual data being computed by a computer by studying the variance in the power fluctuations of the computer and getting that information by studying the variance of the flicker of the LED light that is connected to that same power source, the power source that is driving the computer. In fact, in the case for the S8, they didn't have a, a like a hard drive blinky light on the on the smartphone, but that smartphone was charging on a USB hub connected to another device connected to the same USB hub, also drawing power from that hub, such that the blinky light on the speakers that were connected to the same USB hub flickered enough for them to get the same information about computations being done on the smartphone, which was also drawing power from the same USB hub. I know it sounds crazy. Now there's a lot of caveats to this. The, this is not the kind of thing where, you know, you're going to be able to point a webcam in somebody's window at the blinky light on their computer and all of a sudden get all their passwords. This is a very, very contrived situation, but it's still really, really interesting. And yes, it does mean that if you want to, you know, if you, if you're in a situation where you need a super secure computer that you want to make sure spies cannot, you know, get information from, then you probably need specialized hardware. And you also should probably take some basic precautions, like maybe putting, you know, black electrical tape over your hard drive blinky light. I have heard studies of, of people being able to get interesting information off the blinking lights on uh, Ethernet switches in the same way. Some of the other experiments these guys done, I want to talk about as well. They actually were able to look at the light reflected off of, a, I think it was a bag of chips, uh, like a bag of snacks sitting in, on a table in a room where people were talking. They were able to look at the slight light variations coming off of that because what's happening is that <laughs> that bag of chips is reacting to the sound pressure in the room. In other words, the, the words being spoken, the conversations in there are making other things in the room vibrate. And so they were able to look at the light variance on something shiny. In this case, it was a, a bag of chips in the room. And they've also, as this article talks about, they did it with light bulbs in a room because the light bulb itself also absorbed the sound energy in the room and made the little filament inside waver a little bit. In other words, they were basically able to bug the room by looking at light sources in the room that were flickering. It's really just amazing. I, I've, you may have seen spy movies where, you know, the spies bounce a laser off uh, windows uh, in a room where people are talking and using that technique to, because the windows are vibrating, to hear what is going on inside that room. Which is why, by the way, in some uh, companies uh, or military organizations or other places that have this problem, if they actually have conference rooms with windows on them, which a lot of them don't for this reason, uh, but if they do, some, sometimes they actually put noise generators on the windows to prevent this sort of thing from happening. It, it's just crazy. It, this is total spy stuff, but I just thought it was fascinating. So anyway, I, would, I thought it would be interesting to read this and talk about it a little bit. All right, so next up, this is from 9to5Mac. Uh, and this is about a proclamation from the Australian prime minister recently, which was interesting. And, and at least the author of this article thought was a little bit misleading. So let me read it and I'll give you my take. Last week, Australia's prime minister offered some security advice for iPhone users, suggesting that everyone should turn off their iPhone for five minutes every night. On the surface, this may seem like harmless advice for iPhone users, but the reality is quite a bit more nuanced. In fact, such broad and generalized statements like this one do a disservice to most people. Here's why. Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, made the comment last week while highlighting the need for the country to, quote, thwart cyber risks, unquote, proactively. 
And this is a quote from the prime minister quote, we all have the responsibility, simple things, turn off your phone every night for five minutes for people watching this, do that every 24 hours, do it when you're brushing your teeth or whatever you're doing Unquote. Albanese's advice isn't necessarily bad advice. In fact, it's based on similar guidance that the U.S. National Security Agency, or the NSA, issued in August of 2020. But the advice from the NSA was far more specific and nuanced than what Albanese outlined in, uh, during his speech last week. In its breakdown of the mobile device best practices, the NSA says that rebooting your iPhone once every week can, quote, sometimes prevent, unquote, things like spear phishing and zero-click zero exploits. These types of threats, however, are highly targeted and generally target specific individuals or groups of individuals. Other tips offered by the NSA include things like disabling Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and the cellular when not in use, using a, quote, mic drowning case and cover camera, unquote, and more. This sort of advice, as pointed out by the security expert Troy Hunt on Twitter, is meant for the intelligence community, not the general masses. Zero-click exploits are dangerous because they can compromise a device without the user doing anything at all. The vast majority of zero-click exploits, however, don't target everyday iPhone users. Instead, they are state-sponsored attacks from governments with poor human rights records developed to spy on political opponents, journalists, lawyers, and human rights activists. Last July, Apple unveiled something it calls Lockdown Mode. This feature was introduced as part of the company's continued commitment to protecting users from this type of highly targeted mercenary spyware. Lockdown mode is built into every iPhone running iOS 16 and newer and includes some extreme protections to limit exposure to zero-click exploits. And this is a quote from Apple, quote, Lockdown mode is an extreme optional protection that should be used only if you believe you may be personally targeted by highly sophisticated cyber attack. Most people are never targeted by attacks of this nature, unquote. Apple says that, quote unquote, very few users should have lockdown mode enabled on their iPhone. This primarily includes people who, quote, may be personally targeted by some of the most sophisticated digital threats, unquote, because of who they are or what they do. Okay, so this, I think this might be a little bit too much to do about nothing. It's it's not a bad thing to do. The, the upshot here is that if your phone were to be infected by one of these, you know, zero click type of attacks or other kinds of malware, a lot of times that malware only exists in memory. That is, if you just restart the device, it goes away. It's like be, it's like in being a RAM, uh, which is not stored to disk. It's not something usually saved. So they attack your phone while it's on. And as long as you leave your phone on, that malware remains resident. But if you simply power cycle your device, and I don't know why five minutes is important, just turn it off and turn it back on. If you actually power down your device and power it back up, the contents of your phone's memory, your RAM is purged at that point. It's a fresh, clean slate. And so that malware is therefore gone. And if whoever attacked you in the first place wants to reinfect you, then they need to go to the trouble of reinfecting you. They have to do whatever they did last time to get you infected, to get it done again. So if you are the kind of person that might be targeted by one of these highly sophisticated attacks, which is very, very, very few people, then yeah, restarting your phone every so often makes perfect sense. Now, it's for this exact same reason that I often tell people that you should restart your, your home router periodically. Your home router is a prime target for bad guys, and a lot of the hacks and attacks against home routers are only in memory. They're only in RAM. So that if you restart the device, it is freed up from whatever malware may have been controlling it. But there are actually other great reasons to restart your router and even to restart your phone. Sometimes, you know, the memory just kind of gets full and chunked up full of stuff and having a, a clean slate can make it perform better. So there, it's really, it's not bad advice. As, as this article says, doing, you know, restarting your devices every so often is not bad advice. But I think the point of this article is, is that the prime minister just kind of says, hey, this is something we should all be doing and it makes us all safer. In reality, very few people are going to be targeted by these sorts of uh, attacks. So it's, you know, the, the nuance there is that more than likely this is not going to do anything for you because you've probably not been infected by, you know, this type of malware because this type of malware is very expensive to develop. It's not generally used broadly. It's a very targeted kind of a thing. And so maybe it gives a false impression of security because, it's, you know, you're probably not attacked in the first place. And it glosses over the fact that you're probably not targeted by the kind of things that this would fix anyway. So, all right, moving on. This next one's from Rolling Stone. Over 100 artists, including Rage Against the Machine co-founders Tom Morello and Zach De La Rocha, 
along with Boots Riley and Speedy Ortiz, have announced that they are boycotting any concert venue that uses facial recognition technology, citing concerns that the tech infringes on privacy and increases discrimination. The boycott, organized by the digital rights advocacy group Fight for the Future, calls for the ban of face scanning technology at all live events. Several smaller independent concert venues across the country, including the House of Yes in Brooklyn, the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles, and the Black Cat in D.C., also pledged to not use facial recognition tech for their shows. And this is a quote from Leila Nashashibi, who is a campaigner for Fight for the Future. And the statement says, quote, Surveillance tech companies are pitching biometric data tools as innovative and helpful for increasing efficiency and security. Not only is this false, it's morally corrupt. For starters, this technology is so inaccurate that it actually creates more harm and problems than it solves through misidentification and other technical faultiness. Even scarier, though, is a world in which facial recognition technology works 100% perfectly. In other words, a world in which privacy is non-existent where we're identified, watched, and surveilled everywhere we go, unquote. Facial recognition technology at venues has grown increasingly controversial over the past several months, particularly as Madison Square Garden Entertainment and James Dolan have garnered scrutiny for using the tech to kick out lawyers affiliated with ongoing lawsuits against the company. And I read you an article about that not that long ago. Several attorneys have been removed last year from events at MSG's venues, including its eponymous arena and Radio City Music Hall. Last October, attorney Barbara Hart was removed from Brandy Carlisle's Madison Square Garden concert because her law firm was litigating against MSG in a class action lawsuit, even though Hart herself wasn't involved in that suit. While Madison Square Garden has received the most press given the unusual and petty use of the technology, it's not the only venue in the country that has tried out facial recognition. Fellow New York venue City Field, as well as Cleveland's First Energy Stadium, Miami's Hard Rock Stadium, and the Pachanga Arena in San Diego are among several venues across the country that have used face scanning. This isn't the first time Morello and some of other signatories, including SpeedRTs, called for a ban on biometric tech at the famous venue. In 2022, Red Rocks Amphitheater in Denver abandoned Amazon's palm-reading technology following a protest from the artists and fight for the future. Venues themselves aren't the only ones using the tech. And there are cases where the software could be beneficial. Taylor Swift, for example, used facial recognition during her reputation tour as a means of identifying her known stalkers. While those instances reflected practical cases in which facial recognition could be helpful, those calling for the ban and boycotting the venues argue that its risks outweigh its benefits, and that biometric technology impedes privacy rights and increases discrimination against marginalized groups, including people of color and members of the LGBTQ community. So I, you know, like most of these things, I understand, like, look at Taylor Swift. I, I, I get it. I mean, I'm sure she's got a lot of people stalking her. She probably has photographs of these people and has the wherewithal to install facial recognition technology to try to keep these stalkers out of her concerts. Anyway, these technologies do have promise. Obviously they've got uses that can be good, but we've got to be really careful where we put these things. And if we just put them everywhere, it is a form of mass surveillance and it will lead to abuses. It is a very, very slippery slope. It certainly will, you know, someone's going to come along and want to monetize that information. So I honestly, I support this ban. Though I know that there's other, there are other worries about, you know, terrorist things, like certainly the things like for like the Super Bowl or some of these, you know, the really, really big public sporting events. I, I, I understand. I get it. So this is something I mainly want you to be aware of, to know that this is happening, to know a lot of these venues are using this now and just uh, something to be aware of because, you know, it affects all of our privacy and it could absolutely be abused in the wrong hands. All right. This next one's from bleeping computer and it's about the brave browser and it brings up something that I don't think I was aware of until I read this article, but totally makes sense. So, uh, let me read this and then we'll talk about it. The Brave team has announced that the privacy-centric browser will soon introduce new restriction controls allowing users to specify how long sites can access local network resources. Locally hosted resources can include images or files needed or used by web programs on your device. Other local resources can include access to devices on your network, such as NAS devices, locally hosted servers, shared network printer files, shared network device and computer data, etc. It's common for websites and local web apps to request access to local resources to fingerprint users or collect information about what software runs on a user's machine. 
And this is a quote from Brave, quote, Surprising though it may be, most browsers allow websites to access these local resources just as easily as they can access other resources on the web, unquote. This practice was documented since at least 2020 on websites such as eBay, Citibank, Chick-fil-A, and many more as part of an anti-fraud script used on the associated sites. Brave says all major modern browsers, including Chrome and Firefox, allow websites to request access to local resources and use them without restriction. Safari blocks these requests even when they come from secure public websites as a side effect of its security measures rather than as a specific design decision to stop this dangerous practice. Brave is introducing a local host access permission to tackle this problem while still permitting sites they trust to access local resources for a limited time. Another quote from the Brave team, quote, Brave is the only browser that will block requests to local host resources from both secure and insecure public sites while still maintaining a compatibility path for sites that users trust. Starting in version 1.54, and the current version is 1.52, Brave for desktop and Android will include more powerful features for controlling which sites can access local network resources and for how long, unquote. By default, no sites will be granted permission to access local host resources, so users can give it manually by going to brave colon slash slash settings slash content slash localhost access on the desktop or settings site settings localhost access on Android. Besides this new permission mechanism, Brave will use filter list rules to block scripts and sites that abuse localhost access. At the same time, Brave will maintain an update and allow list of trusted sites that will be allowed to prompt users to permit them to access local network resources upon their first visit. Requests to localhost resources from a localhost context will still be allowed to pass through without requiring special permissions. All right, so... Let me stop and explain a couple things here. First of all, localhost. Localhost is a term of art, is an actual term in networking speak for your local machine, for your local device. It's a generic term for this device. That device actually also has a predetermined fixed IP address. And you may have seen this. If you've ever looked at some internet logs, you may have actually run across this. And that IP address is 127.0.0.1. Sometimes you may have seen somebody with a really geeky t-shirt that says, there's no place like 127.0.0.1, because that is also home. This is your local host address. And this is a fixed number within networking so that if you ever route something to, you know, 127.0.0.1, that goes to whatever your local device is on the network, the device you're on now. Now, this is really interesting. I not really thought about this, but you could do a port scan of somebody's home network. Uh, you could do this on yourself if you want to try the Shields Up utility from GRC, for example. Uh, you could also scan your local network with certain software applications. You could scan your home network to see what devices are there. Of course, you can also just go to your home router and get a listing from it there. But this is, you know, this is something that you can do when you're trying to probe a network. This is something that malware often does to see what other devices might be running on your home network. But you can also do these same things on your local PC or on your local phone because there are services, network services running sometimes in the background, sometimes as a, as an app on your, on your device that make available networking ports. Uh, and because they're all running on the same machine, they all have the same IP address, uh, which there is some address, you know, for other devices on your network to access that there is an IP address assigned to your device using DHCP from your router. But Locally, you can always talk to the local machine by sending something to the IP address 127.0.0.1. That is home. That is local host. And so what this article is saying is that some websites you visit try to access things on your local host in a way of kind of probing what other software might be running on your device. Because if you've got a little effectively what's a little server running on your device, some application or background task or extension or something running on your machine that's listening for network traffic on your device, it will be listening at this localhost address. And so the port numbers that these things are listening on, because when you, whenever you're doing network, there's, there's two parts to it. There's not just the address. You also need the port number. It's kind of like, you know, at a business where they've maybe got the mailroom and the mailroom has the address, which is the physical address of the building. And then within the mailroom, there's different 
slots, right? And every, you know, every person's got their own slot. So it's kind of like that localhost is the local address for your device. And then the port number is kind of the more specific one. And uh, it's so if it's 127.0.0.1 colon 3000, you know, that is some service that is running locally on your, on your system, listening at the port 3000. So these web pages are actually trying to hit some of these kind of pre-known things to find out, oh, well, this person is running a Plex server on their device, or this person is running a print server on their device, uh, and kind of probing your device by looking at well-known ports on localhost to fingerprint you, to, to get an idea of what other services you might be running to identify you. And they were doing it for anti-fraud stuff, so they were trying to fingerprint you to make sure that you really were who you said you were kind of thing. You know, it, but it's still a shady practice. And basically what's happening now with this Brave browser is they're saying, uh-uh, that is a new permission. Like access, you know, you've seen your web browser say, hey, can I access your mic? Or hey, can I access your location? Or can I access your camera? Or other kinds of, you know, permissions. Things that are devices or services or information that you may not want to just give up automatically because, you know, privacy reasons. Well, now they're basically adding a new permission request. And that permission request is, will you allow this website to probe localhost? And like the other permissions, you can probably set it to, you know, yes, one time you can do it, or yes, you can do it permanently, or no, you can't ever do that again. Don't ask me anymore. And that will be a per site thing. That's really interesting. My guess is that other browsers will, will, will come on board. Hopefully Firefox will, will do this as well. But that's a very interesting thing. And it's an innovative. I'm glad to see that Brave is doing some really great work there. All right, last article real quick, and then we'll get to our Dear Carrie question, our tip of the week. This is from 9to5Mac again, and it's about Proton Pass. Proton, the maker of Proton Mail and Proton VPN, uh, has now released a password manager. Uh, let me read briefly about this, and I'll give you my take. Back in April, Proton launched a beta for the service that's been one of the most requested by its users. Now, Proton Pass, the end-to-end -end encrypted password manager, has officially launched for all users on desktop and iOS and Android. And there's even a free version that includes storing unlimited credentials and notes. As we noted when the beta launched, not only does Proton Pass offer end-to-end -end encryption for your passwords, it does that for all fields, including your uh, email, username, and the web address, keeping you more secure. Let me just pause for a second. You might think, why wouldn't they all do that? And of course, if you remember, LastPass turns out LastPass didn't. And that was one of the things that we all really beat them up over uh, when the LastPass breach came out because not everything was encrypted. Like, why wouldn't you encrypt everything? Anyway, so that's, that's why this is important. ProtonPass also uses an open source, auditable design so anyone can verify the security of the platform. And Proton is planning to release the reports from independent security audits. ProtonPass works with the most popular browsers, Chrome, Firefox, Edge, and Brave on desktop and iOS and Android. However, no support for Safari at this time. Also included with the paid ProtonPass is a built-in two-factor authenticator, and there is a password import tool to seamlessly switch from your old password manager. ProtonPass is now included with any of the company's individual or family plans, but it's also available for free for everyone. With ProtonPass free, you get unlimited logins and notes, unlimited devices, and 10 hide my email aliases. And I'll come back to that in a second. ProtonPass Plus is being offered for a dollar a month, billed yearly, and includes unlimited logins and notes, unlimited devices, unlimited hide my email aliases, built-in two-factor authenticator, multiple vaults, and more. Okay, so, you know, hats off to Proton. They're building up their suite of tools. It's really great that they've got all these things and they're working together. Proton Pass is a logical extension, especially since they just bought Simple Login. And I said I would get back to this. The Simple Login is a hide my email or an email aliasing service where you can generate kind of dummy email addresses on the fly that all route to a single inbox, but hide your actual email address from whoever you're giving this alias out to. So it makes sense, right? I mean, your credentials are made up of two things. It's not just the password. It's also your username, which today is almost always your email address. And so having simple logon built into this where you can, when you're you know signing up for an account, where you can choose a kind of a dummy alias email address instead of giving away your actual true email address is, is great for privacy. So everything I've heard about this so far, and I've looked at some, some reviews from places I trust, looks like this is a pretty bare bones password manager. It doesn't have a standalone web app vault, for example, you can only use it through the extension, you know, maybe that will be coming in the future. 
but it looks like it's got a very nice user interface. It works pretty well. It's great that it's open source. That's great that they're going to have audits, third-party audits of the tool. That's wonderful. However, uh, I do have some reservations about kind of keeping all your eggs in one basket, for example, like, like the, this thing has got built in two-factor authentication so it can fill in the codes for you. That is extremely convenient. Uh, I understand why people would want to have that, but it also kind of means if I, if I get into your Proton account, then I have access to everything, not just your passwords, because now that I've, now that I've got access to ProtonPass, but I've also got access potentially to your two-factor authentication codes. So I guess even if you're a Proton user and you want to give this a shot, I, I, that's fine. If certainly if you don't have a password manager, it's a great place to start. I mean, it'd be easy to use the one that comes with your service. That's great. But I would not use them for two-factor authentication. I would still keep that separate. I don't know yet if ProtonPass supports passkeys, for example. I'm sure they will. But hey, that's great. I'm glad to see them adding to their portfolio. Uh, it's really nice to have a one-stop shop. Though personally, I would still keep recommending Bitwarden for most people or one password. They've got a lot more features right now. Uh, you know, but you know, maybe proton pass will eventually catch up. All right, let's get to the dear carry question for the week. And, and I admit it's been a little while since I've done one of these. Uh, so we've got one here from Mark from sweet home, Alabama. And Mark asks, would you recommend using Firefox as a default PDF reader or stay with Adobe reader? I use Firefox for my web browser with uBlock origin and privacy badger. All right, Mark, uh, that's great. By the way, I, I, Firefox is my recommended browser. Uh, Brave is also very good, but Firefox is my personal go-to browser. Uh, and I love uBlock Origin. I actually believe Privacy Badger might be a little bit overkill now. I think there's so much, uh, uBlock Origin does so much now. I'm not sure you need Privacy Badger, but it doesn't hurt. So for a little background, PDF stands for Portable Document Format. I'm sure you've run across these. It's sort of the lingua franca of text files, of documents. It's the common format that, most of us have settled on when we want to exchange documents with different devices and different types of computers and different operating systems. Uh, they all basically support PDF. It's got downsides. They're not really terribly editable, like, you know, not like a Word document. They're mostly made to be read, not to be edited. Though a lot of modern tools, in fact, Adobe's Acrobat uh, tool, a lot of the recent people like using it is it lets you do some limited editing and annotations of PDF files. Turns out though that that this has become so common and so popular that, that many other PDF readers have a lot of these same basic features, including filling out, you know, PDF forms and things like that. And Firefox is one of them. Uh, so, uh, certainly if you, you know, Firefox is a perfectly usable PDF reader, uh, it'll work for most people on most things. It just means that when you, you know, open a PDF file, it'll be within a tab of your Firefox browser. Because of that, it's also, you know, gets a little bit of security built in, you know, some of the sandboxing and things that comes with your web browser can help there as well. Uh, however, if you happen to be on a Mac, the built-in app preview is really a great PDF reader. And that's the one I recommend for most people on Mac. It has a lot of great features. And if you're on Windows, uh, for years, I used to recommend uh, Nitro, I think, it was, I think it was, or Foxit for a while. The one I've been recommending more recently is called Sumatra. It's open source. It's free. Uh, it's a very serviceable reader. It'll actually also handle some other formats like ebook formats. But yeah, honestly, your browser probably by default, Firefox, I think does this for sure, is set up to handle PDF files. So if you go to open a PDF file, Firefox by default will open it in another tab on Firefox. And it's perfectly good at showing you a PDF file and even letting you do simple uh, annotation and editing tasks. So yeah, Mark, basically I agree. Firefox is a perfectly serviceable PDF reader and even you know, minor editing. Now I will also say that Adobe products drive me nuts. They, they're way bigger and more bloated than anything you really need for most parts, unless you're a really, you know, major power user of PDF stuff. I would avoid using Adobe products for this Adobe reader. Uh, it's been a while since I've looked at this and I don't like using it, but Adobe reader, I think is the, is the free one that most people use. It's the one, a lot of websites say, you know, if you want to read this file, you must install Adobe reader or we support Adobe reader uh, or whatever. So they really push you to download and install that app. So you can supposedly to allow you to view this file. You don't need it. There are many other ways to do it, including just using your browser. Uh, Adobe is just known for installing a bunch of crap you don't want, along with the thing that you meant to install. They, you know, other crapware. The, the apps are bloated. They're also highly targeted by hackers because they're so popular. 
And frankly, they're buggy. And that's another reason hackers target them is because they're in the past, certainly they have been riddled with vulnerabilities. So anyway, I would personally avoid Adobe Reader and Acrobat if you can help it. There are plenty of other tools out there, including free ones that are just as good for most people and have a lot less baggage. And one of those today is is likely to be your browser. Almost all browsers now have a built-in PDF reader. All right, so now it's time for the tip of the week. Uh, I wrote a whole article on this as usual. Uh, if you're a newsletter subscriber, you already have this sitting there waiting in your inbox. Uh, it's also the top article on my blog at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, there's a lot more information in the article. I'm just going to kind of give you the highlights today. But the basic tip is this, is, you know, password managers and two-factor authentication are great. If you're using those, fantastic. Hats off to you. You're well on your way to being more secure. Those two items, those two defense mechanisms can keep the bad guys out and they do a good job if you do them well. But if you're not careful, they can also keep you out of your stuff. And so what you need to do in the point of today's tip of the week is that you need to have an access backup plan. You need to make sure that you've got yourself covered and maybe potentially your spouse or your next of kin to be able to access your accounts and your password vault. So let's, let's go through this step-by-step. Step. First of all, your master password. You've thought up some killer master password. It's really hard for someone else to guess. Maybe it's a passphrase, but you know, you might forget it especially if you just changed it. That's what I usually find is that when I go to the trouble of changing my master password, I get in trouble because I think it's the old one uh, and I forget to use the new one or, you know, I thought I had the new one nailed. And when I thought of it at the time, I had it totally in my brain and it made total sense. And then, you know, one week later when I actually had to log back into my vault again, I'm like, Oh wait, wait, did I do this one thing or did the other thing? Did I, did I capitalize that one letter or not? you know, <laughs> I forget. And, and I try and I thought I remembered it and I, and I didn't. So you need a backup for your master password. And there's a few ways you could do this. Uh, first of all, a lot of password managers allow you to create one-time passwords or uh, some, so sometimes they're called recovery codes. And these are alternate master passwords, basically. Uh, sometimes you have to go to a special web page to use them. It's not the regular sign-in page. Like you wouldn't use your username in one of these one-time passwords instead of your master password. A lot of times, like in LastPass, for example, you have to go to a special one-time password login page uh, that takes you through a special process where you use that one-time password. And then as the name suggests, once you've used that one-time password, it is no longer good. You can no longer use it again. Scratch it off your list. But you can generate a handful of these things and maybe print them and put them somewhere safe. And so that you could, if for some reason you forget your master password, you can use one of these one-time passwords or recovery codes to regain access to your account. And I know that some people laugh when I say this, but you can also just write down your master password. You don't want to put it on a sticky note right on your computer where anybody can see it. You might not want to label what it is. You might just want to write down what it is, you know, the past master password without saying, this is my master password on that note and just put it somewhere safe so that somewhere, you know, where it is so that if you forget somehow what your master password is, you have a senior moment, you have a brain fart, what, for whatever reason, you know, you get mixed up and you can't seem to remember your master password just write it down. That, that's okay. I mean, depending on your threat model, unless your house is filled with a whole bunch of people you don't trust who might be rooting around in your, your desk or your safe or whatever, trying to find such a thing, writing it down and having it nearby someplace where you can find it is generally pretty secure. Now, the other thing you've got to remember is it's not just your master password. If you set up two-factor authentication, you also need access to your second factor device, which is probably your smartphone. So you need to back up for that as well. Now, if you're using a cloud-based two-factor authentication service like Authy, uh, then they offer a method to securely back that up to the cloud. So that if you, for example, lose your phone, stolen, drop it into the lake, whatever, and you all of a sudden no longer have your two-factor device, with those kind of services like Aegis or Ravio or Authy, uh, you can go get another device, reinstall those uh, two-factor authentication apps, and as long as you can sign back into those services, then they will be able to download your secrets, uh, your one-time password seed codes, and we'll talk more about that in a second, uh, to your device and your backup and business. 
So what do I mean by seed codes? Well, when you set up two-factor authentication, the way it's normally done is you will be shown, you know, you'll go to the security settings on your account and you'll say you want to set up two-factor authentication. And then it says, okay, here, here's a QR code, scan this with Google Authenticator. And I often will explicitly say Google Authenticator, but it really could be any of these TOTP apps, any of these authenticator apps. If any of these apps that can scan a QR code, they all work just like Google Authenticator. So even if it says, you know, scan here with Google Authenticator or choose your service and you have to choose Google Authenticator. That's fine. You can still use Authy or Aegis or Rabo or whatever. So that QR code represents a seed, a cryptographic seed. And that starting seed is saved on your device. Uh, and if you're using a, a service that backs up to the cloud, that seed is backed up to a cloud, securely to a cloud service. And it's basically a number. In fact, sometimes they'll show you the QR code and they'll also show you a phrase that also represents that seed, that seed value. And as long as you save that seed value or that QR code, you can reset up your two-factor authentication device anytime you want. So you might want to save your seed codes. Again, what I usually do, honestly, the poor man's method is when I do these things, I screenshot it and I print it off and I label what it is and I stick it in a folder somewhere safe. But if they show you the seed code value, not just the QR code, you could actually copy that and save that somewhere as well. Uh, one way you could do that is you could actually get yourself a second password manager that is just for this sort of thing. If you want to keep them segregated, I would. Uh, I'd keep them, you know, separate from your password. So I wouldn't put this with your main password manager. Because, you know, like kind of like I was saying before with the Proton Pass, if somebody were to get into your password manager vault, Hey, look right there. There's, there's all the seed codes for the two-factor authentication. Now they've got everything they need. So I wouldn't keep those things together, but you could maybe get the free version of, you know, another good, uh, password manager, maybe use proton pass for this, where you might want to save your seed codes for future reference. Or again, like you, like I said, you could just print them out and put them somewhere safe uh, as well. Or again, if you use Authy or one of those other services, they will, all, uh, they will offer a way for you to either synchronize securely from across multiple devices. So maybe you've got an iPhone and an iPad situation or an iPhone and a Mac, maybe even, or a Windows device, and you can synchronize across devices. Uh, they don't need to necessarily be stored in the cloud, but you need to be able to have some other device somewhere else that has those seed codes saved off as well. Now, you also want to be thinking about not just yourself, but you want to be thinking about cases where you become incapacitated or die then your spouse or your next of kin need to get access to your important accounts. They've got to pay your bills. They've got to pay your mortgage. They've got to pay your loans, at least until everything can get, you know, settled with the estate. And first of all, you know, they need a list of all your accounts. And that's another great reason for using a password manager, because not only does your password manager have a list of all your passwords, it is a de facto list of all your accounts, all the things that require passwords. It's a nice list of all the places where you've got accounts. Now, most password managers today, the ones that I would certainly recommend, have an option for an emergency access plan. Uh, sometimes it's part of a family plan. Sometimes it's just an extra service you can add that will basically let you enroll or designate some trusted people, pers person or people, such that they can request from that service, hey, I it's an emergency, I need to get to this person's password vault. And the way it usually works, it's kind of like a dead man switch, the way it usually works is they request access and then they contact you, the actual owner of the vault, saying, hey, someone says they need emergency access to your account. Do you want to allow this to happen? And because it's meant to cover the situation where you might not be able to respond, the way it's set up is that when you don't respond after a certain amount of time, they are granted access. But they check with you first in case, you know, they're going rogue or something weird's going on and you're actually not dead or incapacitated. And you could say, no, 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 they don't need access now. Deny that request. So also in this situation, two-factor authentication is important as well. They will also need to have access to your two-factor authentication device, which doesn't just mean that they have their hand on your iPhone. They have to be able to get into your iPhone or, or your Android phone. They need to be able to unlock it. And they might even need to be able to unlock the, the two-factor authentication app. So you could add them as a second set of biometrics that allow them to get into your phone, for example. Or you could make sure that they have access somehow to your two-factor authentication seed codes. And of course, they're also going to need to know how to use them and how to set them up. So you might need to explain that as well or include instructions on how to do this. But if, for example, let's say you printed out the QR codes for all your two-factor stuff, including your password manager, they could, after the fact, months, years later, 
bring up their smartphone, install that same app, let's say it's Authy or Google Authenticator, scan those seed codes, and then, then their device would be able to produce the exact same time-based pin codes that your phone would produce. That seed code is what, is what makes them produce the same codes at the same time. So even if they don't do it till much later, as long as they have the original seed codes or the QR codes that they could scan, then even on a separate device, their own device, even with a different app, they could generate the same two-factor authentication codes that they need to access your accounts. All right, the article does go into more details than that uh, if you want to check it out. But the bottom line here is, that, is to make sure you have some method, some backup method to get into your accounts in case you forget your passwords or something. And the best way to do that, honestly, is to make sure that you have a backup method for getting into your password manager, which has all your passwords and usernames in it, and some sort of a backup for your seed codes for your two-factor authentication. So there you have it. There's your news, your Dear carry question, and your tip of the week. A couple quick things before we wrap up. I still got some great dragon merch out there for you want to get. If you want to show off your firewalls, don't stop dragon swag. Hey, particularly at Vegas, if you're going to hacker summer camp, I would love to see someone wearing some of the firewalls. Don't stop dragon swag. That would be very cool. If I see it, I will absolutely come up and say something to you. Uh, so if, you know, if you, if you're sporting that, that would be, <laughs> that would be really cool. Just go to fdsd.me slash merch. Also potentially for Vegas and Defcon and Hacker Summer Camp, uh, if you've got a Dragon Challenge coin, and I would love to buy you a drink. And maybe if you've done some great work, if you've done some good deeds recently, you can have somebody nominate you to receive a coin, and they can do that by going to fdsd.me/quest. Got some great shows coming up, good interviews. Stay tuned. Subscribe if you haven't. Leave me a great review if you like what you're listening to. I would very much appreciate it. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next time, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.